Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, April 29th. There have been so many storylines for us to continue to monitor here on the Mini Break podcast every day. The ongoing merger talks between the ATP and the WTA, the player relief fund that's coming together, the mechanics behind that, what various players are saying about those relief measures. Uh, It's been a strenuous time. It's almost felt like it's the actual season with how much news we've had to cover. Certainly, uh, the professional tennis world continues to show that even in a time like this, it never takes any time to rest. But we want to do something a little bit different on today's podcast. We all have more downtime, and we've all looked back at some of the past sporting events. We've looked at some of the past performances from some of our favorite players, and we've taken the time to examine the stats. I've talked about players such as Venus Williams, Monica Sellis, Pete Sampras, Yvonne Lendl, and more on past mini-break podcasts. We want to get back to taking deep dives into tennis's history, talking about the stats from some of the most notable players in tennis's past. And joining me to do just that as well as break down today's news is the former superstar for Denison's Men's Tennis, one of the co-hosts of this mini-break podcast, and our crack rackets do it all, James Foster McDonald. Jamie, how you doing? Good. Feels nice to be back on a Wednesday mini-break, not going to lie. The hiatus has hurt me a bit, so it's nice. Yeah, you're back on your natural day. That's true. I didn't even think about that. Maybe it was just an instinct for me to text you today uh, because I've missed you taking Wednesdays. Had to be it. Yeah, no, that's that's what it is. And of course, the reason we are able to do these podcasts each and every day is because of our friends at Midwest Sports. And for more than 20 years, Midwest Sports has been uh, one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers. They offer a comprehensive selection of fast shipping tennis supplies that few retailers can match and have one of the largest in-stock inventories of tennis equipment online with tens of thousands of products available for shipping from their automated warehouse. They've got it all. Are you a Bablot person, a head person, a you know Wilson type of guy? Maybe you're making the switch to Yonix. I feel like, Jamie, you have a future with Yonix. That just feels like your sort of racket. But you can find it all at Midwest Sports. And I know, Jamie, in the past, you have found yourself uh, buying things, getting your equipment off of Midwest Sports. You have a little firsthand testimony to their services. Yeah, Midwest Sports was my go-to. Obviously, I had a, quite a stint in Ohio there for a while, and uh, based on where they are, I mean, I would get stuff. I'd order it on a Thursday, bam, I'd be there Friday, whether ready for a weekend match or whatever I needed. So um, I, I trust the guys at Midwest Sports. It's a phenomenal place, and uh, really excited that they're back in the mini-break. Yeah, how couldn't you value them? Because they value innovation and have personally tailored their products to highlight your skills on the court. They're well-trained staff, intimately familiar with tennis equipment, and will help you find that perfect tennis racket, that perfect tennis shoe, or those perfect pieces of tennis clothing that is sure to put you ahead of your competition. How do you get involved? You go to MidwestSports.com. I promise you, you will find something you like. You use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off all of your orders. Also, all all orders over $75 will receive free two-day shipping. I mean, it's the best of both worlds. Save a little money in your pocket. Get all of the tennis supplies you could possibly need moving forward. So be sure to go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15. We are so happy to uh, have Midwest Sports as our new partners. The least we can ask you to do is to go check out their gear and go there. It is your one-stop shop for all of your tennis needs. Now, That being said, Jamie, let's get into the news. And I am fascinated about your take on this first topic because I think it's safe to say you've gamed a little bit in your day. You've worked your way around the video game circuit. You can testify accurately what is, isn't a good video game. And this week, uh, the Madrid Open 
offering a virtual tournament, as I mentioned in the get-go. Uh, we have 16 men, 16 women playing a round-robin style uh, event and then coming together for the quarterfinals. And they're all playing as their own virtual video game player. It's virtual tennis. I'm curious, A, what was the last tennis video game you played? What are your thoughts on tennis video games in general? And then, of course, B, uh, what have you thought of this event? Uh, number one, top spin three on the Wii. Um, <laughs> I know that for sure. It's actually right behind me in the apartment because I dragged the Wii out um, the other day. So I know that one off the top of my head. Surprisingly, not as much fun as you'd think. You'd think with the Wii, you could actually like swing and everything. It's just it doesn't catch on quite right. So nothing can quite uh, you know master my forehand slice in the video <laughs> game. It just it just simply doesn't convert that way. But um, no, I mean, look, I, I think it's a I think it's a good idea. Um, like, tennis video games have never been the, the biggest thing in the industry. We all, obviously, we know that. Um, but, you know, it's a fun way for them to, to keep people engaged. And, you know, obviously with the Murray and Nadal stuff recently, that's, hey, that's been fun. Um, I, you know, I did see a tweet from Curious was like, hey, can we play games like Fortnite or COD so people actually watch? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm pretty into that take. But on the other hand, I get it because, you know, they're still trying to keep the tennis in it. So I, I don't know. I see it both ways. But no, hey, good for them for trying to do something, right? Yeah, a couple of follow-ups to that. A, I never made it past Top Spin 2 for the GameCube. I just, I didn't like the Wii controllers. I was more of a GameCube guy. And I, I do agree with you, though, that the Top Spin series was the way to go. I don't believe that's what they're using here. But to your point, A plus for effort. It's this sort of execution, the sort of innovative chance you take in a time when we don't have much content, when there's no ability to play actual tennis. As you mentioned, try and engage tennis fans, try and highlight some of the personality in our sport. You know, there have been a couple of miscues. Of course, would I like to hear more from just the players playing and less from the commentators, more communicating, uh, you know, smack talk between them? Yeah, of course I would. But as you mentioned, you know, to Kyrgios's point, people who watch video games like COD, like, uh, you know, 2K or whatever it may be, uh, they're not going to watch tennis players playing that. They're going to watch the professional players play that. Tennis fans may watch a tennis video game being played by tennis persons. So I do understand the thinking behind that. Not that you don't. I'm just saying that is, I, you know, I understand that reasoning. Um, but I do think it's been a fun event. And look, again, to the miscues, one of the funnier withdrawals or, you know, missed matches in tennis history, Dominic Team and Karen Hatchnov had to pull out of the event due to technical problems with their internet connections. One wonders if they're still going to be able to collect the prize money from this event as this still counts as a withdrawal. But, you know, beyond the things like that, I, I don't think anyone cares who's in the quarterfinals, which start tomorrow. I will say, I think Andy Murray's the prohibitive favorite on the men's side to win, although CT Pass was great. I think it's Belinda Bencic's tournament to lose on the women's side. But just taking a chance like this, it, it's rare to see tennis do something like that. So I guess I'm excited to see this sort of thinking when you add this on top of potential merger talks and player relief funds and all of the other things going on in tennis. Is that fair to say that this is still you know an exciting attempt? Yeah, no, I, like I said, I think I like, you know, where their head's at. I, I think also, too, and obviously this is, this goes much outside of the, much further outside of the context of just tennis, but this is a good example of something that, you know, they're going to have this as a rehearsal. They're going to try it. And, you know, after all this coronavirus stuff clears up, they're going to have something like this in their back pocket. Now, are they going to be doing this instead of their actual tournament? No, of course not. But in their heads, it's nice to know that they can try to put on virtual events like this, you know, if they have particular sponsors, um, if people are particularly drawn to something like that. So having this as sort of a practice run for them probably isn't the worst thing in the world, especially in a, you know, in a global context where everything's going more and more virtual. And this is a, a way to captivate some audiences. So I, I think it's a win-win for them. Obviously, it's not going to pull in the biggest crowds. And obviously, it's not going to be as exciting as it would be if it were, you know, real tennis. But once again, I respect the attempt. I agree. What do they have to lose? Might as well exactly. try something like this. Uh, all right, that was news item number one. News item number two, one of the big stories of this week. Dominic Team uh, earlier in the week, I think it was on Monday, shared his thoughts on the relief fund for lower-ranked players. Just to go over those quotes real quick. 
And these quotes come from Lucas Zarir, uh, Zarer, I apologize for butchering that, uh, uh, from Tennis Twitter. He said, none of the lower-ranked players have to fight for their lives. I've seen players on the ITF Tour who don't commit to the sport 100%. Many of them are quite unprofessional. I don't see why I should give them money. I'd rather donate to people and institutions who rather need it. There's no profession in the world where you're guaranteed success and high income at the start of your career. None of the top players took anything for granted. We all had to fight our way up the rankings and there was more to those quotes again I'm reading a loose translation of what he said and you know just given the time period we're living in it was inevitable that there would be a strong backlash to that sort of sentiment because even if he had individual criticisms whether you know if his criticism would have been why would the players be paying money to pay the other players as opposed to the institutions we play for why isn't the money coming from them I think that's a more valid criticism I I just think the tone of his initial quote came off incorrectly, you know, certainly wrong and just insensitive to the time period we are in. There are other flaws with it as well, uh, but today there was a cleanup quote, and he stuck to his argument. He said, there are many things that bother me. I won't change my mind on the relief fund. There are some players I do not want to support. Uh, He also said, however, some things that I said came across too harsh. It's a fact, not only in these current times, there are always people, organizations, and animals who need support more than probably every single sports person. He talks about how the rankings consist of 2,000 players. Some of them aren't really professionals. And while he says he's fine supporting up-and-coming players, he would like it to be the players who choose directly which players need to be supported. And he said, you know, there's some who would really profit, need it the most, and deserve the support that he would be in favor of supporting. Now, Jamie, I'm curious, what were your thoughts on his initial comments, and what did you think of the cleanup thoughts today? Yeah, I mean, so the initial comments, I mean, like I said, it's kind of inevitable that somebody was going to come out with a strong opinion, you know, didn't exactly know what it was going to look like. I mean, I think he knows it came across harsh, and at first he was just speaking his mind, right? And, you know, in some regards, I respect that, not saying that I agree with that opinion. And um, like you said, it's not like he was going after sort of the institutional angle. He was simply just like, no, I don't, I don't want to pay these people. Like, why is it me? Like I worked for it. And so, you know, that attitude, I I don't necessarily think it's that productive. Uh, I mean, look, I understand it and he's entitled to his opinion, right? I mean, that's what he thinks. He fought his way up through the rankings, you know, good for him. And and now he's earning money. He he talks about how it's about work ethic and and all that. But um, what he kind of loses sight of is the fact that everyone is in the global sport together and all these athletes, I mean, everyone who plays professional tennis can't be three in the world, four in the world, five in the world, right? Like that, I mean, just the structure of a professional sport um, like this, it just simply doesn't work like that. And so definitely a little bit insensitive um, in terms of the cleanup he did on it. Yeah. He recognized how harsh it came off. Didn't really, like you said, didn't really back off of it much provided us some more clarity. And it's pretty clear that there are just certain people that it would really rub him the wrong way if he were giving money to. Now I could sit here and speculate and, you know, probably offline, you and I will talk about who he's actually talking about. I don't think it's appropriate to, you know, single people out and just guess randomly at the moment. But really, that's what I got from the cleanup is he's basically saying, no, you know, I don't have a problem helping people who I think deserve it and who are working hard for it in a tough situation. I don't want to be forced to just give blanket money what I worked hard for when I see or I feel that some people aren't and they don't deserve it. So in some regards, I get that. Um, So the cleanup job, as you call it on the second quote, captures it a little bit more still a pretty harsh take overall I think it was a better cleanup job than Novak did on his vaccination comments. But to your point, Dominic Team worked his way up the rankings. This is a guy who's played over 25 events a year for probably the last seven seasons. And if you go back to how many tournaments, I'm sure he was playing in the juniors. This is a guy who worked his way to the top of the game. Sure. And, you know, he is someone who wants to reap the benefits of working his way to the top. He wants those big appearance fees. He wants those big Grand Slam paydays because to his credit he's earned them and there's something to that but as someone who worked his way up the rankings and you know he was a top ranked junior and so were the resources probably always there for him and slightly better than the average player who wants to ascend their way up the rankings yeah I would say he was probably in the top one percent of 
scenarios you want being a t- former top junior. But, you know, he also understands what it's like to play seven straight futures events and have bad results and just not make any money. He understands that sentiment. And there's a time period like right now where everyone is extremely sensitive uh, to just the amount of suffering that is going on because of this pandemic because in a te- from a tennis aspect all of these players you know it's all the challengers that have been not that have been lost as well all of the futures events and for a lot of those guys even if they're playing the futures all year long they're lucky if they're net you know zero for the year in terms of expenses plus prize money you know a lot of these guys are losing money and he understands that or I'm sure he's aware of that and it's the idea that you do you know emphasizing you need a healthy lower rank. You need a healthy, not minor league is too harsh of a term, but you need a way, a system in place for players to ascend their way up the rankings. And that's what the Futures and Challengers does. It weeds out the best of the best. Only the cream of the crop move up to the top 100, get to start playing the 250s and advancing from there. And, you know, without that sort of system, you can't fill a Grand Slam draw. You can't fill all of these 250 events, these Masters events. And that's what, you know, you may lose sight of when you're at the top of the game and you're commanding these sorts of appearance fees I suppose wherever you go and it's to his credit that he's having that uh that he has that sort of success as you mentioned but you know yeah the the cleanup was he has a right to defend his own interests but you want to know why they don't have a player union to this point that's why because the top ranked players will always feel that sort of sentiment yeah yeah, it's it's tough and like I said too I mean you're essentially getting at this at the same point but they're there's like this sense of camaraderie, but then strangely not toward the top. But then there is talks of union. It, it, it does sort of go back and forth. And obviously with it being such an individual sport, there are individuals who have their, have their own opinions at every single level. Dominic team, obviously asserting one of the uh, harshest ones from the top um, here. And so yes, the cleanup eases it a little bit, but certainly not much. He's still sticking to it. So that's Dominic team for now. Yeah, and of course, as more details become available of what the player relief uh, package is going to look like, we will continue to discuss them here on the Mini Break Podcast. Uh, Two more quick news items. Yes, we are well aware here at Crack Rackets that the ITA All-Americans for the Division I men and women came out today for college tennis. We will be discussing them on a later Great Shot podcast. Chris Haliorce, Matt Stachowiak, and I going to come together to have a little bit of fun, put a bow on this 2020 season since we all are now well aware it's not coming back this year, but we still got to see plenty of tennis, so we're going to do that show later in the week. We're not ignoring it, though. Congratulations to all of those athletes who earned themselves All-American status for their accomplishments over this past season. I also will just say there was a really good interview with Iga Swiatek, uh, who of course is the young, I think, 18, 19-year-old Polish player who has been ascending up the WTA rankings. That article done by Chris Otto at The Fan Child was a great read for me earlier today, and I think all of you listeners will read that or will enjoy reading that as well, so be sure to go check that out. It was a good one. Uh, Jamie, any final thoughts? You ready to get into today's debate? Let's get into it. All right. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. With that in mind, uh, as I mentioned at the top, We wanted to have a little bit of fun today. We wanted to uh, discuss some of the stats from Tennis' Past, some of the names. And to be honest, here's where today's tangent. Actually, you know what? Westoff, give me a rewind sound effect. Okay, so here's the truth, Jamie. Last night, it was about 11.30, and, you know, I just recorded my mini break with Carousel, Technique Tuesday. He's on the West Coast, so I was up late, and I was just clicking through the TV. And, you know, during this time period, there are no live sports, so that we're seeing a lot of famous matches, a lot of reruns on television. And there were two reruns actually going simultaneously. One was the 2012 Australian Open men's final between Djokovic and Murray, uh, between Djokovic and Nadal, which I won't watch on principle because I believe Djokovic-Murray was the better match in the semifinals. And the other one on NBC Sports was the 09 French Open final between Federer and uh, 
Soderling. And just for some context for you listeners, I went on Gil Gross's Monday Match Analysis show on YouTube to talk about the 09 U.S. Open between Federer and Delpo in a uh, CR Classic that I believe is coming out today. I talked with Max Rothman about the 09 Wimbledon final between Roddick and Federer. This was obviously the final that preceded all of that, and, you know, I haven't watched Robin Soderling play in a significant period of time, and Robin Soderling was a big character in men's tennis right as I was really getting into it. 09, he beats Rafa. Uh, obviously, that's, you know, Rafa's first loss at the French Open since before he started winning those events, and it was a monumental moment, and then that 09 final, Federer goes on and beats him for Slam 14. He wins Wimbledon the next event for Slam 15. 15 over Roddick, you know, that's really the time period I was getting into tennis. And, you know, just watching Robin Soderling, because this is a guy who, in the course of his career, made back-to-back French Open finals 2009-2010. He won a Masters event at the end of 2010 in Paris. Maybe him and Burditch were the guys who started the trend of funky wins at the Paris Masters. Uh, but he was a guy who was on the rise, who had finished uh, 2010 as the year-end number four five player in the world. And in 2010, uh, he was he turned 26 years old that season. So in theory, he still had three, you know, four years left of his prime. And he started 2011 in the peak of his prime. He was 38 and nine. His last event, which came in August, was a win for him at the 250 event where he beat Burditch 1-0. He beat David Ferrer 2-2. Two and two, And then he never played again. And just watching Robin Soderling uh, during this match was, uh, I just, I forgot how great of a talent he was. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that's where I want to start this conversation, Jamie. What do you remember about watching Robin Soderling? What do you think of him, his upside, or his upside, I suppose, was as a tennis player? Yeah, I mean, gosh, it seems like so long ago now. And I mean, I guess it was, I guess that, that really speaks to Ten years has happened and how old I am. But, you know, I mean, I'll always remember that forehand. It's just a slap. I mean, he takes his <laughs> so far back and it just looks ridiculous. And I think that's where we start. Obviously, the, the rest of this pod will go into player comparison. So n- no sense in holding back on that now. Um, but, you know, it reminds you of any of those players who are able to hit one of the big guns off the court. Um, who's able, like, who among these people is able to hit one of the top guys so really like Nadal Djokovic Federer too but really Nadal and Djokovic in this sense being the defensive um, gauntlets here right who's able to hit through them and and Robin 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 Soderling (laughs) had this patch where he just could he just could I mean his forehand his strokes were big enough and he was athletic enough that he could do it now obviously a career cut short Unfortunately, but yeah, you mentioned particularly those two years that he makes the back-to-back finals at Roland Garros. I mean, and you saw it how impressive his movement was, and of course, you know when he t- wins over Nadal at at the 09 French Open. I mean, you see why this guy and was so good and what he could have been, right? And it's hard to articulate sometimes exactly what he could have been and where he was, just because it's one of those where you look back and, and you want to remember it fondly, but then you also want to say where could it have been. Even without that extension, that level of play was just so good. It just was. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And you look at the stats he put up, you know, his prime, we're going to say, because 2000, he really started playing events full-time 2004, which again, in 2004, he would have been 20 years old. This is a guy who, by the way, is like a year older than Burditch, a couple years older than Chilch. So his generation is really that Ferrer, Burditch, Songa uh, generation of players. That's the guys he was competing with. Those were his peers when he was at his best. And look, starting in, you know, 2000, 2004, he reaches the top 40, has a bad 2005, but then 2006, he gets up to number 25 in the year-end rankings. 2007, uh, as part of his Davis Cup team, he helps lead them to the semifinals. That's sort of a springboard to him towards 2008, where he really starts rocking and rolling. You know, that's the only season of his career where he plays all nine Masters events, but with those sorts of results, he gets into the top 20. And then those 2009-2010 seasons, wins over 70% 70% of his matches, 49 and 21 in 2009. He obviously has that final at the French Open, makes the semifinals of the year end championships, quarterfinals of the U.S. Open, uh, quarterfinals in Shanghai and Paris as well. 
And he started to ride that momentum. And again, I can't emphasize enough. He was 24, 25 years old. That's your physical prime, even in the 2010s. Uh, and he rode that all the way to number five. He, you think of him as a his French court, uh, his French court, excuse me, his clay court success because finals, finals, quarterfinals at the French Open from 09 to 2011. But at the start of 2010, he made the semifinals back to back of Indian Wells and Miami. You look at the players who he beat to get to those points, it's not like it was fluke draws, right? He ended up beating Songa. He beat Murray before losing in three sets to Roddick. He beat Fernando Gonzalez, who was 11 at the time, Yuzny 15 at the time before losing to Burdich. I mean, this was a guy who could beat uh, his best competitors. And what really stands out to me, you look at top 10 wins he put together uh, during uh, this stretch of time, his best stretch. He went, you know, five top 10 wins in 08, seven in 09, five in two. 2010, five in 2011, he was near or at the top of the game as he started to reach his prime. And it, it gets to what a shame it was. You know, maybe the best comparison for him might be Del Potro uh, in terms of guys who we saw reach the peaks of the games, but have just had their careers ruined in any momentum they may have gained taken away by injuries. Yeah, I think that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty fair comparison. Obviously, you know, the one that sticks out there is that Del Potro does get across the finish line with his 09 U.S. Open win, of course. But, um, I mean, yeah, if we're to extrapolate from what we saw from Robin Soderling, especially in the 09 and 2010 seasons, I mean, there's no reason he can't be up there competing for those. Uh, so, once again, yes, of course, unfortunate that we really never got to see him come back. And you hope that that's not the case for Del Potro. Obviously, he's getting older and has had so many injury problems. You hope that, you know, that's not the same story and that he will come back and, and get to a you know, top tier Del Potro level. Like we know, you know, that we've seen, of course, with the huge forehand and, and everything else. Um, but the point remains, yes, certainly similar in that regard. Um, and honestly leaves us wondering, right? I mean, we're, we're never really going to know what could have happened. I think that's one of the things when you close the book on Robin Soderling is you say, Hey, you know what? You take it for what it was. He was able to take out some of those top guys. He handed Nadal that legendary loss at the French open. And yeah, it's a legacy that cut short, but it's still his legacy. Look, he ended up still getting, what, 10 titles in the ATP Tour. Um, he had those two back-to-back seasons that he was a legend up there. He got up to, what, four in the world. Um, and so that's who he is, right? And so it's kind of unfortunate, but you say, yeah, you know, 10 years ago, that's Robin Soderling. We thought maybe we could get him back, but after a few years of battling all of the things he was, he finally just said, you know what, I'm done. Um, and I respect that. And, you know, that's Robin Soderling. It's unfortunate, but he's an important part of those late uh, 2000s. Yeah. In that 09 season, you talked about his win over Rafa. And, you know, certainly for him to follow up, because that was a match that was in the fourth round, right? And it's easy to get that first win, but it's following those wins up and, you know, ensuring that you actually t- capitalize of an upset like that. And for him to make that final, uh, I believe you look at who he beat uh, to get there. I'm looking that up now as I'm talking. I apologize. Uh, but the guys he beat afterwards, he beats Davi Danko in, stra- uh, in straight sets. He beats Fernando Gonzalez in five sets. Just to follow up that emotional win over Rafa and reach the finals was an incredible accomplishment. And sometimes after an accomplishment like that, if you're not a legitimate player, there will be a drop-off. I mean, I'm the, the comparison is, think about Jack Sock, who goes on to win Paris and then can't find a win for the next season and a half. There, there are just some times where you have a stretch runner, you have a breakout performance, and you're not able to follow it up. And I guess Jack Sock's the extreme Dream, but you know that was not the case for Robin Soderling in 2009. He beat Rafa again at the ATP World Tour Finals. He beat Djokovic at the ATP Tour Finals. He beats you know Federer the next season in the French Open quarterfinals to make it back to the final. He's got wins over Davidenko in this time, Songa in this time as well. Uh, he rose to the occasion, and you know his Paris Masters title run. He beat Simone Wawrinka, Roddick. Uh, Michael Lodra, I suppose that's the the gimme. And then Gael Monfils. That's a legitimate run to a Masters title. And this is a guy who had a ton of success. And you sort of mentioned it, but... What really stands out to me and what separates him, and this is how I'm going to transition to my conversation about Chilich and Burdich, and in terms of, you know, Soderling's upside as a player and what we were robbed of, 
Why I think Soderling had a higher upside than Chilich and Burdich is for the exact reason you said. That forehand, much like the Del Potro forehand, could just take over a match. Those days on the clay when the ball's just sitting up there in his strike zone and he's moving his feet well and getting around the ball and just finding confidence. I mean, the power he can produce, the angles he can produce with that backswing— it was a dominant stroke. And I mean, Soderling was what, 6'5", 6'6". He, you know, solid physical, I think 6'4", but solid, you know, first serve, good on the return, quality backhand as well. And he wasn't afraid to go after the ball. And I think so many of these guys in the biggest moments against the Federers, Djokovic, Nadal's, Murray's of the world, they, they, you know, they don't have a weapon they can turn to for easy points. Soderling did, and that's what made him so fascinating. Yeah, I, I think the comparisons, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to say I'd put Soderling above Chilich just because of the fact that Chilich has you know, reached the finals of three of the four Grand Slams and won one of them. So, I mean, look, we'll never know what we don't know, right? I mean, it, we can play the what-if game for sure. I mean, when you get to stylistically speaking about this, of course, Soderling with the huge forehand truly could take over a court. Um, you know, we talked about it with Del Potro. I think an interesting comparison to me as well um, sometimes is Vavrinka um, because Vavrinka has the ability to hit through even those top guys. I mean, you listen to Vavrinka talk and he's like, yeah, I like playing Djokovic. That brings out the best side of me because he knows he can hit through those people. And hey, not saying that's the whole story here, but um, could there potentially be a link? Because Magnus Norman, I don't know. I'm just saying, um, you know, that, that coaching similarity, right? That There's got to be something there. But regardless, yes, I, I do put him in that similar camp because of the weaponry that he possessed. It's just unfortunate because, of course, we got robbed of it. And so we don't really know what could have come of it. But yeah, stylistically, he had the weapons to blow people off the court. And, and we've see, we saw him do it, especially in that sort of golden era stretch for him from 09 for a couple of years. Yeah, look, his record against the big three uh, is atrocious. One and six Djokovic, one and 16 against Fed, two and six against Nadal. But, you know, seven and four against the Davi Danko, 10 and four against the Ferrer, uh, four and oh against the Songa, five and one against the Robredo, five and four against the Gonzalez, six and three against a Burdich, you know, four and two against Jill Simone. These were all guys he was playing and they were in their respective primes. Now, you know, I excluded a one and six against David Nelbane. But if he wasn't in the Federer, Djokovic, Murray, Nadal category of player, not in that order, by the way, but you get what I'm saying, he mm-hmm. was right beneath it. And that's why I started to think, and this is part two of today's tangent, I suppose, is in comparison, the upside uh, of a Robin Soderling and how good he was at his best compared to a guy like Marin Cilic or a guy like Tomas Burdich. And I just think the, the fact that Marin Cilic... I, at least it seems like will be so much more fondly remembered uh, than Tomas Burdich in the histories of AT, of the ATP Tour. I just don't agree with it. Like The more I look at the statistics, the more I look at the longevity, the more I look at the totality of Tomas Burdich's career, yes, he only made one slam final and he lost it to Rafa at Wimbledon. But for how good, you know, how long he played and how good he was during that stretch of time— I think the career of Tomas Burdich is better than the career of Marin Cilic. Now, if Marin Cilic does, you know, something beyond 2020, 2021, maintains a top 20 presence for another couple of years, yeah, Cilic still has time to change the script. Uh, but Jamie, I, I, I guess your thoughts to that initial hot take. In terms of if I'm ranking the upside of all of these players, who is the best? I mean, I guess we'll get into that conversation in, in a second. Just your thoughts on Burdich, Chilich, and where they stand in tennis's history. I, I mean, I don't really agree. Um, I think, look, you can, you can make the argument on the Burdich side for a couple things, but I mean, I guess let me ask you this and be honest here. If someone said you could be remembered with a legacy or, you know, we'll not spin it like that because your whole point is that it's incorrectly remembered right but if you could have had the career of Burdich or Chilich you're honestly take you're honestly taking Burdich's I think I don't so. think that's right I don't no, think that's I, right so can I make the case can yeah, I get into the it. stats all right let's go straight comparison and we have the same stat sheet right yeah so I'm gonna read Burdich's I want you to read Chilich's after uh, and we'll go category by category and just deem who is more impressive 
ranking stats. For Burdich, he was top 40 for 13 straight seasons, top 20 in 12 of those 13, top 10 in 7 straight from 2010 to 2016, never ended a year top 5, but reached a career high of number 4. What are Chilich's? I mean, in that top category, we've got top 40 every season from 08 to 19, top 20 in 8 out of those 12, top 10 in 4 out of the 10, never finished top 5, but a career high of 3 in the rankings, which was at the beginning of 2018. So who do you give the edge to there, Burdich or Chilich? I mean, so here's the problem with this. <laughs> Listeners, Ruskin crafted this himself, so this isn't really a valid just check sheet. I mean, I think, look, you can spin this any way you want to say that certain stats for a 12-year period go to Burdich, and that's fine because of the consistency. Sure, you can make that you can make that statement, and you know, I might not agree with you, but I'll say, okay, I see it. <laughs> the problem is, when you look back on this, you can't honestly tell me that you would rather have Burdich's career because you were making some claim about your consistency. I mean, look, their overall winning percentages on the tour are very similar. Obviously, Chilich is not done yet, but they're very similar as of now. But the thing is, he's... Look, he's won, he's won a Grand Slam. He's made the finals of two others that he hasn't won. Like, I, I don't know. That outweighs a lot. I know not everything goes down in Grand Slams, but in terms of legacy, he got up to three in the world as well. I don't know. I, I just feel like you I feel like you lean Chilich here. No, okay, so I'm going to keep cooking the stats if you don't mind. And, yes, I did put together you the stat up, sheet. So, no, there yeah. was no bias. I put together the same stats. I did Chilich's first, by the way. Um, but, anyways, so you keep going. Just, just Sl- because there's no bias, you include – okay, whatever. That's right. a ridiculous statement. Go so, slam, first of all, the slam stats are equally ridiculous for both of them in terms of their longevity and in terms of just, you know, half of tennis – half the battle is showing up and getting into events, and these guys have done just that over their career, you know. Know, no better testaments to durability than the careers of Chilich and Burdich. It's why, again, I, while the upside for Soderling might be better, these two guys have definitively had better or more accomplished careers. But I'm going to do Burdich, you do Chilich. Uh, played 60 out of 64 possible slams since 2004. Fourth round, 33 times or better. Quarterfinals, 17 times or better. Semifinals are better. Seven times, only one final. Chilich, 49 out of 52 possible Ridiculous. since the start of 2007. Reached the fourth round or better, 23 of those. Uh, quarterfinals are better, 13. Semis are better, 5. He's reached so again, three finals, 14 of U.S. Open, 17 of Wimbledon, 18 Australian Open. Won the title at the U.S. Open in 2014. Okay, and we don't have to go through that 2014 U.S. Open and just how weird it was because that's a whole nother podcast. But Chilch's win in that semifinals, of course, he famously knocked out Federer in straight sets after Federer had been pushed to five against Monfils in the quarterfinals. That was a funky one. That was one where Chilch was the 14 seed coming in. You know, he played Nishikori, obviously, in the finals in one of the sloppier Grand Slam finals, certainly of the past 10 years in tennis. Um, But, you know, yes, he did get that title. But, you know, it was 13 quarterfinals versus 17. That's pretty close. Burdich has the edge. Five semifinals are better versus versus seven. Again, pretty close. Burdich gets the end. It's not like Burdich lost to bad players whenever he reached the semifinals or better. His losses came to Nadal or Djokovic or Federer. And by the way, he beat Federer to reach that final at Wimbledon. That has to, you know, give him some credit as well, right alongside of uh, Chilich. Now, he couldn't get over the Nadal hump after beating Federer but Chilich didn't have to get over a Nadal or a Djokovic. He had to play Nishikori. And so I'm just saying you can't hold the circumstances of Tomas Burdich against him. But, you know, longevity-wise, in terms of how deep of uh, they're going into these slams, Burdich, uh, you know, he was a lock to make the second week of the slams in the majority of the slams he played. He did it in 33 out of 60. That's over 50%. He was consistently one of the best, you know, 16 players more often than Marin Cilic was. Like, again, just sustained excellence. It comes down to longevity and, you know, how consistently good you were versus upside. And you want to argue that Cilic at his best in one match was better than Tomas Burdich. You know, 6-6 career head-to-head, that's fine. But I just think by every other metric, and we can get into the master stats now, you know, for Cilic... No, you're not. No, 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 no. You're not blowing through that. Okay. I (laughs) I let you get away with so many outrageous... First of all, 
being like, yeah, he won a Grand Slam, but Burdich went 17, I mean, he got to 17 quarterfinals out of 64, and Burdich 13 <laughs> out of 52, I mean, you know, dude, that is nothing. That is, that is, that is not a statistic by which you stake a legacy. That is absolutely nothing. Sure, they both, I mean, look, at this point, what are we, splitting hairs? Yeah, they both had, they both shown that they can sustain excellence, right? Like, I, I don't know. That that to me is not where you draw the line in the sand and say, oh, well, 17 or better quarterfinals out of 64. That's pretty solid. Give the edge to Burdich. Look, when people are talking about slams, also diminishing and saying he played one good match is a little unfair to Chilich. But, I mean, look, I'm not going to sit here and say 2014 U.S. Open was great in terms of the final. But it's also a little unfair to just brush it off and be like, yeah, Chilich played one good match. Let's scratch that from the legacy. I mean – that outweighs a lot of other things like taking home a grand slam title versus and reaching three other finals versus just getting to one final. I, I don't know. I think you're crazy. If you think that Burdich has any sort of edge in that slam category and it's not close. All right. I'm just saying when he got to the semifinals or better here were Burdich's losses. He lost to Nadal. He lost to Soderling in five sets in that French open semifinal. He lost to Murray. He lost to Wawrinka who went on to win the 2014 Australian open. He lost to Murray. He lost to Murray. He lost to Federer. He lost or that. And that was it. Like, it's not like those are bad losses. Yes. Burdich's fundamental flaw was that he could never get over the hump against Federer, against Djokovic, against Nadal. Doll and you know he goes six and twenty against Federer, three and twenty-five against Djokovic, four and twenty against Nadal. I agree. He had a fundamental flaw, but you know, for Chilich, one and nine against Federer, two and seventeen against Djokovic, two and six against Nadal, he only had to beat one of them to win his slam. And I'm just saying you shouldn't hold that against the that that Chilich was able to win his slam. It's a credit to him. I completely agree. But that that circumstance never happened to Tomas Burdich shouldn't be held against him because I just think totality of the career for Tomas Burdich and Chilich's isn't finished, but totality-wise it was better. I mean, look, if you're going to if you're going to go anywhere with it being a weird draw, you should have gone to the 2017 Wimbledon where Chilich I mean, he had to beat Query to get into that final, so that's where you should have gone. A but fundamental anyway, flaw, too. Are we going to talk about the fact that Marin Chilich cried in a Grand Slam final and yeah, that I mean, should be held against look. him in some way? Yeah, it's not great. I'm, I mean, look, <laughs> I, look, I did not come into this pod thinking I was going to be, you know, a Chilich defender. Someone, someone carrying the torch for Marin Chilich. <laughs> I don't think I would ever have expected that. But, I mean, at a, at a certain point, look, Tomas Burdich, if we're talking about getting through stats, that semis he made. By the way, both of these, incidentally, were in the 2017 Wimbledon semifinals. You know how Burdich got there? A withdrawal over Djokovic. So, <laughs> I don't know if you really want to talk about that. But, no, I mean, look, the point remains, especially when you start going head-to-head against the big guns, I, I think what it really illuminates for us is that, like, okay, how big is this cliff? Because Chilich, we're like, wow, what a legacy. He won a U.S. Open, like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, 2-17 and 17 against Djokovic. Like, yeah, okay, that's a tough look, right? I mean, so there is just such a massive drop-off um that is just such an inherent thing that has to be a part of the conversation guys and yes getting over the hump is incredibly hard to do but the fact that Chilich was able to somehow navigate through a draw or multiple draws to get deep into them sure luck on his side for throughout some of them when you have somebody like you know Jill's Muller going late into the draw sure I get it and that makes sense to me but the fact remains, Chilich found a way to do it and get to the finals multiple times and ultimately cross the finish line Burdich never did yeah, uh, look, I just don't think it's fair to whittle Burdich's career down to the fact that he never won the slam. That just doesn't give credit. I no, guess, but you're comparing it a guy. You're comparing him to a guy who has won a slam, so that's obviously going to come no, up. That's true, but it, okay, you're you're absolutely correct. But I'm ju- I just think Burdich was better for longer, and yeah, Chilich's highest moment was better than Burdich's highest moment. But for if you. I don't know. If you think for a second that you would actually rather have Burdich's career and walk away with fewer titles without a Grand Slam, I, I don't know what you're thinking. And and then cling to it, be like, ah, I had a better career than that guy because, you know, I made 17 quarterfinals in this stretch and he only made 13 in his stretch. Like, dude, that's that's not a legitimate argument. Okay, they played, uh, uh, Chilich played nine less Masters events during this stretch of time than Burdich that I'm about to examine. In that time, Burdich, 45 different Masters quarterfinals, Chilich, 20. 
Burdich, 17, uh, 17, excuse me, 19 times to the semifinals or better at a Masters event. Chilich only did it five times. Chilich had one uh, final at a Masters level. He won that 2016 Cincinnati that came right after the Olympics where everyone was wounded. Burdich only has the one Masters title, but he made three finals as well. I mean, Matt, there are nine Masters events during the year, and Tomas Burdich consistently did better at them than Chilich. A 45 quarterfinal gap versus, you know, 45 versus 20, 25 better results. That's a significant gap. Like that is, and I know quarterfinals is an arbitrary cutoff, but consistently at the biggest events, Tomas Burdich showed up. And I think he deserves credit for that. And I guess uh, this will be my last question for you, then we can wrap this up. Are either of these guys Hall of Famers? Um, so here's the thing. If for any second you consider Burdich one, then Chilich absolutely is. Um, <laughs> but I can also, so, so that's the thing, right? I, I don't think like if one of them gets in and the other one doesn't, it's Chilich getting in, not Burdich. And it's not the other way around. Um, you know, to quickly talk about your master's point. Yes. I mean, Burdich, once again, the longevity and the sustained ex- excellence is great there. I think it's also only fair to mention the fact that this is skewed a little bit earlier and before some of the big guns really got going, like Djokovic and his dominance. I mean, you're talking about seasons from 05 on. I mean, that's that's pretty early. And yeah, but Chilich 05 to 17. Later. Okay, but 05 to 17 is peak Federer. Sorry to cut you off. Peak Federer through the Djokovic era. I guess he was there for all of sure, it. Sure, but look when Chilich starts, when you've got maybe yeah. Federer slightly down plus Nadal and Djokovic up. Yeah, that's fair. And that's a, harder, that's a harder era. Yeah, okay, good for yeah, you and Murray. But yes. <laughs> um, no, I mean, look, so the Hall of Fame debate, I mean, I'm I'm always more on the inclusive side here, so I would be closer to saying both. But the fact that Burdich didn't win a slam, I know, I, look, that's not the only thing to cling to, but it's tough to put him in there. And once again, if you're going to put one of these guys in, if I've only got one vote and it's one of these two, it's Chilich. Tomas Burdich, see ya. 53 career top 10 wins for Burdich, only 33 for Chilich. Still playing. Uh, here's the thing. If you're telling the narrative of 2005, really the ascension of Federer through 2020, the peak of the big three, really that 15-year stretch, does any player better encapsulate the rest of the tour than Tomas Burdich, a guy who was just exceptional week in, week out, but could never overcome the big three or at least multiple versions of them at the slams. That That is the story of every other player during that era. And Chilich was the exception to that rule, right? You, There's always a footnote about that 2014 U.S. Open that he ended up winning. But, I mean, I would argue that— Yeah, remember when Burdich lost Ono to Gofen? <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> Do you also remember? But Burdich has the iconic moment of the no handshake with uh, Nicolas Almagro, and that's just an all timer. So yeah. that 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 moment should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, losing in fifty minutes, zero and zero, and not holding serve once against David Goffin, as Tomas Burdich is. Here's the thing: tough. I think if one, I think if one gets in, they both have to get in because yes, Chil- I, because again, this gets back to my argument of yes, Chilich won a slam, but I think Burdich had the better career. I um, think. Yeah, but if you let Chilich in, the line is so easy to draw. He's like, ah, no, he made he made three finals, one one. I don't know. I feel like I don't know. I feel like the the line is just much easier to draw if you let Chilich in and not Burdich. If you let Burdich in and then not Chilich, that that simply doesn't fly. Would you rather be top ten for seven straight seasons or win a slam? Slam. I mean. It's easy for me to sit here and say top 10 for seven straight seasons, but if you're top 10 and consistently hovering and you can't get over the hump at a slam, I imagine that's quite frustrating. Yeah. But I'm going to hold the line here. I'm going to take Tomas Burdich. You can take Marin Cilic. Better player at their peak. Burdich, Cilic, Soderling. One match. Neutral surface will say hard courts because, again, Soderling was low-key excellent on hard courts. Who do you take? I mean, at their best, God, it's hard. I mean, it's not Cilic. Um, <laughs> Which so, should that fundamentally mean he has a worse no, Hall of Fame case than No, because by that Burdich? logic, like, Vavrinka would go down as the best of all time because he can slap <laughs> someone off the court. So, like, that that's not a thing. Um, God, I, I think, I know maybe this is just remembering him too fondly, but 
you know, I did go back and watch quite a few highlights of him today because I knew we were going to have to, not have to, get to talk about this. Um, <laughs> you probably go Soderling because of how big the weaponry is. Of course, you can you can say a similar thing with Burdich and the serve um, and his ability to uh, control courts. But man, Soderling, I mean, he just has so much power and the movement. I mean, I think he just out moves Burdich in this hypothetical scenario and, and hits him off the court. I don't know. I, I go Soderling and maybe that's... Uh, that's one for the the honoring the legacy. I don't know, but I'll stick with Soderling. No, it's a really good pick because I would say the same. I've seen Robin, Robin, Robin. You got me. To do <laughs> I got it. you. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've seen Robin Soderling do. Uh, you know, just play that match against Nadal when he literally just hits down on everything. Yeah, it's. I've never seen Tomas Burdich do that. I've seen him lace balls across the court, but just never dominate so recklessly the way that Robin Soderling did. And that recklessness, that confidence, that swagger, uh, is what Thomas Burdich probably Thomas Burdich probably always lacked. So I agree with you. I think I would take Soderling, but in terms of their careers, I would go Burdich, Chilich, obviously Soderling. Uh, and I think you've made your stance clear as well. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap this bad boy up? Long live Marin Chilich, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that's the fight I'm fighting now. <laughs> I think that goes into your Twitter bio, right? Marin Chilich defender. Uh-huh. I think so. And I go into the Tom- Tomas Burdich defender. I don't know if yeah, that's that, a that can't up. feel good. <laughs> <laughs> it was inevitable. Uh, somewhere, Eric Fandel, who is smiling fondly. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, that that'll do it for today's mini break podcast. Of course, if you've missed any of the news going on from the professional tennis world, be sure to check out our earlier mini break podcast. We've had so many great guests. ITA CEO Tim Russell to talk about the future of college tennis. People like uh, you know Mark. Lucero, John Wertheim, Ben Rothenberg, uh, Tumani Cariel, so many uh, of our great reporters out there to discuss the future of tennis. We've also had so many great reporters, uh, reporters, excuse me, players on our Cracked Interviews uh, podcast to discuss, uh, you know, how they've adjusted to this pandemic time period, their plans moving forward. Players like Dennis Kudla, Claire Liu, Christian, Bethany Maddox-Sands, Mitchell Kruger, and more. Tommy Robredo as well. Talk about a guy who had a, a long career a guy who is still out there on the professional tour uh we've got the chance to speak with so many of the great players and if you've missed any of those conversations be sure to go check out the cracked interviews podcast like rate subscribe review this podcast the great shot podcast the cracked interviews podcast our brand new inside out podcast which does some deep diving, some storytelling into some of the best storylines from professional tennis history. Season one has been released. You can find that podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. And of course, if you've missed any of our content, be sure to go to our website, crackrackets.com. Shout out as always to the super producers, Max Flinker and Daniel Westoff for the f- of an editing job they do day in, day out. None of this happens without them. Jamie knows how big of an idiot I really am, and they make me sound semi-competent. So shout out to them. We always appreciate their work. Shout out one last time to our friends at Midwest Sports as well. Go to their website, MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15. You will have all of your tennis equipment needs fulfilled. It is your one-stop shop for tennis shopping. So be sure to go check it out, MidwestSports.com. All right, one last time, Jamie. Any final thoughts now? Any podcasts you've listened to? That, you know, Did you get the chance to listen to Inside Out yet? Well, I haven't listened to the finalized product, but I've listened to the audio files, so I know what's up. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you skipped over me earlier. I didn't want to cut you off because, you know, I'm so polite. But I was going to throw the Tommy Robredo plug earlier because when I was looking back at that 09 French Open draw, I had forgotten that he was in the quarterfinals along with two other guys that we talked about, Del Potro and Soderling. They were all in the quarters together. If Del Potro, he's the one who took out Tommy Robredo in the quarters and straights. Del Potro then goes to the semis and loses the five-set heartbreaker to Fed. If he wins that, Soderling probably takes the French Open in 09. But, hey, that, that's just – that's a take for another time. That's a big-time what-if. But, anyway, yes, Tommy Robredo, go listen. <laughs> I almost recorded my own CR Classic just watching that 2009 French Open last night. I was like, should I just get on the mic and talk about this for 30 minutes? You probably could have. Yeah. <laughs> I would have if Parker wasn't like, dude, please don't record this late. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's a problem for me, I suppose. But for my wonderful co-hosts, James Foster McDonald, our super producers, Max Flinger and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we tell the people? That's a break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.